This is Viewpoint with attorney and author Chuck Chrismeyer. Viewpoint is a one-hour talk show confronting the issues of America's heart and home. And now with today's edition of Viewpoint, here is Chuck Chrismeyer. It has been revealed in the last couple of days that the Pope has been gathering a group of transsexuals, yes, transsexuals into the Vatican. And he's been gathering them there for food and fellowship and uh, a time together, uh, basically embracing them as part of the body of Christ and as those to be celebrated. Among those, it appears, are Roman Catholic priests. Pope Francis, though, at the same time, has blasted the backwardness of some conservatives in the U.S. Catholic Church, saying they have replaced faith with ideology, and that a correct understanding of Catholic doctrine allows for change over time. So many conservatives have blasted Francis' emphasis uh, on social justice issues such as the environment and the poor, while branding as heretical his opening to letting divorced and civilly remarried Catholics uh, to receive the sacraments. The Pope says, I want to remind these people that backwardness is useless, and they must understand that there is a correct evolution in the understanding of questions of faith and morals that allows for doctrine to progress and consolidate over time. So here's my question for you. Is the Pope a voice for Christ or a false prophet? Is the Pope, Francis, a voice for Christ or a false prophet? Now, we know that no man is perfect. We know that no man, including the Pope, who supposedly, when speaking ex-cathedral, speaks as the voice of God himself, the vicar of Christ, Christ himself in the flesh. And we know that can't possibly be true. But that's the fiction within Roman Catholic theology. On the other hand... If he purports to be a voice or representative for Christ, then how is it that he supports that which is contrary to what Christ has said? So when Jesus said, whoever divorces their spouse causes them to commit adultery, and whoever marries the one so divorced commits adultery, but the Pope says, well, not so fast because these things, matters of faith and morals, evolve. And we have to understand that there's a correct evolution in the understanding of questions of faith and morals. In other words, what Jesus said isn't necessarily true. It can be remodeled, revised, reconfigured by a pope. Now, therein lies one of the problems, you see, with the whole concept of the papacy. Because it purports to be the voice of God, standing in the place of God, but in fact is speaking for itself. In other words, the very thing that the Pope is criticizing conservative bishops and so on in the American church about is what he himself is doing. He's blasting the backwardness of the conservatives who are holding on to the truth as best they can, the real words of Christ, and the Pope is calling it backward. Why would the Pope call it backward? because he's seeking to please a completely different audience. He's not seeking to please God, and we can say that with great clarity and authority. 
because he disagrees with what God has said. He disagrees with what Jesus has said. He only embraces the parts that he wants to embrace that he thinks will market well or sell well to his most desired broader audience. Is he a false prophet? And what is a false prophet anyway? What's a false teacher? What's a false prophet? We want to take a look at that here today on Viewpoint. Our purpose here is not just to uh, uh, lay hold of the Pope and, uh, uh, you know, criticize him uh, in just continually, in other words, to beat a dead horse, so to speak. No, we don't want to do that. But we're bringing this up because it's important to understand he purports to lead somewhere around one and a half billion people on the planet. Anybody that purports to lead a vast number of people on this planet in the name of Christ needs to be observed carefully by those who claim to be followers of Christ to see if indeed that person is speaking for Christ, not just in the name of Christ. They're speaking the words of Christ, speaking the words of the gospel, speaking the words of the Bible without questioning their authority. And so that's where we go today here on Viewpoint. So I'm glad that you joined us. This conversation is always with ever-increasing conviction, talk that transforms. And I take you initially to the book of Revelation, chapter 13. The book of Revelation, chapter 13, is the place where we find, at the end of that chapter, the uh, horrific uh, mark of the beast mentioned. It's the only place, other than in Revelation 14, where the mark of the beast is mentioned. But we know that a beast empire rises up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten hordes and ten crowns, and upon his heads the name or name of blasphemy. In other words, that means this beast empire is radically opposed to the God of the Bible, the God of creation, the God who sent Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son, full of grace and truth, to give hope to, to humankind if we would just confess our sin, embrace his shed blood on the cross and his resurrection for the hope of eternal life. But this beast empire does not do that. And the dragon, that is Satan himself, gives his power and his seat and his great authority to this beast. Now, people will reason, they'll argue, they'll speculate about what this beast is, and what it's composed of, and so on, and we're not going to do that here today. But what it does say in Revelation chapter 13, verse 3, is one of his heads, as it were, wounded to death, and his deadly wound was healed, and all the world wandered after the beast. Now, are those who say that actually the papacy was the beast? I know of uh, several uh, Christian groups or cults who maintain very strongly that the papacy is the beast. We're not commenting about that here today on Viewpoint. I'm not even going to try to express an opinion in one way or the other. But what we do know is the dragon gives this beast his power and his seat, and one of his heads, as it were, wounded. Now, maybe that would be a nation, maybe that would be an individual, uh, we don't know. 
but all the world wandered after the beast whose the uh, deadly wound was healed. And they worshipped the dragon, Satan, who had given power unto the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like unto the beast? Who is able to make war with him? And there was given to him, that is this beast, which sounds like it's an individual, but maybe it's both an empire that he rules over and an individual known as the beast. And he has a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies. And power was given unto him to continue forty and two months. And he opens his mouth in blasphemy against God. And is given unto him to make war with the saints. And then we look at his false prophet. Stay tuned. Once upon a time, children could pray and read their Bibles in school. Divorces were practically unknown, as was child abuse. In our once great America, virginity and chastity were popular virtues, and homosexuality was an abomination. So what happened in just one generation? Hi, I'm Chuck Chris Meyer, and I urge you to join me daily on Viewpoint, where we discuss the most challenging issues touching our hearts and homes. Could America's moral slide relate to the Fourth Commandment? Listen to Viewpoint on this radio station or anytime at saveus.org. We're talking today about the nature of false prophets and false teachers. Yeah, we're not just talking about a false prophet. beside Israel as its closest ally. However, despite the momentous bipartisan support that the United States Congress and leadership have demonstrated, and the understanding of Israel's right to defend its citizens against an unrelenting enemy on its southern border, the images emerging from the war zone in Gaza and the mounting pressure on U.S. lawmakers amid cross-country public demonstrations will have major ramifications for ultimately establishing stability and security in the Middle East. Israel's institutional experiences over the past two decades have proven that Iran and its proxies, Hamas and Hezbollah, are the biggest impediment to long-term regional stability, not just for the normalization of Israel relations with countries in the region, but for the millions of Arabs who are partners for a brighter future. As foreign agencies continue to try to dictate Israel's best course of action, 
Israel must eliminate the root of what caused this war and address the potential outcomes from hostage release negotiations as the Israeli Hamas war approaches the end of its second month. So, notwithstanding the supposed uh, exchange of prisoners and so on, which itself is somewhat of a joke, revealing the weakness of the West in capitulating, releasing twice as many serious Hamas warriors in Jewish prisons, releasing twice as many of them as innocent civilians taken hostage by Hamas. Where is the equilibration of fairness? Where is all this discussion of fairness and equity now from the liberal media and from the Western world? It's just not there. This is showing a tremendous weakness and an attempt to try to declare that the positions of Hamas and uh, their surrounding those countries that are surrounding them that are actually supporting their endeavor, showing the dramatic difference between that and Israel, and we need to understand why that dramatic difference. That's what we're going to focus on here today in the balance of the program. So I'm glad that you've joined us. This conversation is always, with ever-increasing conviction, talk that transforms. An article came out from international, the Israel International News, uh, formerly known as Arut Sheva. The eternal hatred, lessons from Yaakov and Esau, Jacob and Esau, lessons from Jacob and Esau. Now, what's that all about? Well, you remember that uh, there were two sons twin sons, Jacob and Esau. And they were born, and Esau was the firstborn. So he had the right to the first to, to the birthright as the firstborn. But he bartered away that right because he was out in the country doing his hunting, and he became famished. And Jacob was there cooking up a stew, a red stew of some sort, and Esau asked him for some of his stew. So Jacob said, okay, I'll tell you what, brother, I'll give you some stew if you will give me your birthright. So Esau reasoned within himself. The Bible gives us this exact picture. Esau reasoned within himself, look, what good is my birthright going to do me if I'm dead? And I'm so hungry, I'm as as if I'm going to die. So why shouldn't I just barter away my birthright that is worth something so great just to survive? So he did. And the rest of the history is that Jacob then received the blessing of his father as the firstborn. 
Now, yes, indeed, as you read the Bible, you'll find out that it was taken by, shall we say, subtlety. His own mother conspired together to deceive her husband, Isaac, in order to get the blessing given to Jacob. Nevertheless, Isaac refused to recant the blessing. He said, what I have done, I have done. And he gave the blessing to his son, Jacob, of the firstborn. When Esau came tripping in later to provide the venison that his father was awaiting, that had already been delivered to him by Jacob, Isaac was troubled. He said, I've already given the blessing. Apparently, your brother has taken it. Now, Esau should have known that because he's the one that bartered away his birthright. That's the reason why the Bible says, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. Those were God's words. Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. He didn't say, I just disapproved of what Esau did. He said, I hated it. Now, why did God hate what Esau did? Well, the reason he hated what Esau did was he gave away something of vast importance for something of very short-lived temporal value. And that's what Christians, professing Christians, are doing today. They're claiming salvation by faith in Christ, but they're living like the world. They're giving up, in many respects, their birthright in order to claim the benefits being offered by the world. They're living like the descendants of Esau. The descendants of Esau are referred to as Edomites, E-D-O-M, Edom. Esau lived in Edom. His people group lived in Edom. The Edomites showed no favor toward Israel ever. Ever. So great was God's antipathy toward the Edomites, the descendants of Esau, who were the brothers of Israel. Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel, they were the brothers of Israel, yet they acted as if they were total foreigners, and God said, this is intolerable. I am going to decree the absolute destruction of the descendants of Esau. So if you were to read the book of Obadiah, you would find that the entire book of Obadiah, short chapters, are given to God proclaiming the absolute destruction of the descendants of Esau, the Edomites. So here we have now an article coming from Israel National News Today, The Eternal Hatred, Lessons from Yaakov, that's Jacob, and Esau. This is right on. According to Rabbi Shimon ben Yechai, he said it is well-known halakhic law, that is, the functional law established by the rabbis in Israel, 
that Esau hated Jacob. It's a halakhic law, he said. In other words, it's something that is not just a simple fact. It is something that is so deeply ingrained in the life pattern of Israel and the Edomites, the descendants of Esau, that it is, is as if it is an absolute law. So the rabbi Shimon ben Yehai teaches that Esau's hatred for you for Yaakov or Jacob is not something fleeting or situational. It's inherent and unchanging. That hatred is not temporary, but rather an eternal law, he said, like the immutability of the Torah itself. So the genuine underlying law and convention in Israel is that Esau hates Jacob. In other words, hates Israel. This ancient hatred between Jacob and Esau persists today in the relationship between the descendants of Jacob and Esau. Hamas's program battle cry was, slaughter the Jews. Though the world saw hardly any Christian leaders clearly condemned it, a tide of anti-Semitism has risen in Europe, the USA, Australia, and beyond. And it deeply affects even the church, writes this rabbi. He said, decades of dialogue are crumbling when Jews face attack, slaughter, and pogrom, and this is met, not with solidarity, but a ridiculous cacophony of diplomatic aerobics. We wonder what decades of Jewish-Christian dialogue have been used for talking about the friendship and fraternity, if that in reality, when there is someone who tries to exterminate the Jews, instead of receiving expressions of closeness and understanding, the response is diplomatic acrobatics. Balancing acts and icy equidistance, which is certainly, certainly equidistance, but is not fair. This rabbi has put his finger on a major part of the problem. A major part of the problem. And so from there... We're going to shift to back to the Psalms, and instead of Psalm 2, we're going to focus now on Psalm 83. Psalm 83. But before we do that, I want to make available to you my book, King of the Mountain, because it is extremely helpful to understand the antipathy of the world toward both Israel and Christians, genuine Christians. It's why the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain and foolish thing and confederate themselves against the Lord and against his anointed. That's what's happening. The King James Version refers to such people as the heathen. They're the pagans. They're the people who are not true followers of God and are not true followers of Jesus Christ. No matter what their contentions are, no matter how much they use the name Jesus 
uh, sort of as a, a, a mascot for the rest of their endeavors. It's not real. It's not true. And God hates it. From the Jewish perspective, please listen very carefully. From the Jewish perspective, the entire world have become Edomites. From the Jewish perspective, the entire world had become Edomites. God hated Esau. Jacob did he love. So if you don't love Israel and the Jewish people leaving their judgment to God, you've got a serious problem because you've aligned yourself with Esau. Stay tuned. There is so much more about Chuck Chris Meyer and Save America Ministries on our website, saveus.org. For example, under the marriage section, God has marriage on his mind. Chuck has some great resources to strengthen your marriage. First off, a fact sheet on the state of the marital union, a fact sheet on the state of ministry, marriage, and morals. Saveus.org. Marriage, divorce, and remarriage. What does the Bible really teach about this? Find all of this at saveus.org. Also, a letter to pastors, the Hosea Project, saveus.org, and many more resources to strengthen your marriage. It's all on Chuck's website, saveus.org. Again, you can listen to Chuck's Viewpoint broadcast live and archived. Save America Ministries website at saveus.org. Again, my friends, if you do not have my book, King of the Mountain, The Eternal Epic and End Time Battle, I urge you to get a copy of it. It is a $20 book, yours for $15, on our website, saveus.org. Saveus.org. You can call us at 1-800-SAVE-USA, 1-800-SAVE-USA, or write to us at Save America Ministries. P.O. Box 70879, Richmond, Virginia, 23255. Writing a check at $5 for postage and handling. First of all, I want to say that our attitude toward Israel is not Israel right or wrong. It's not Jewish people right or wrong. God said to Abraham, I will bless you, those that bless you, and I will curse those that curse you. Now, That's God's viewpoint. The physical descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are what we call the Jewish people today, plus those from the ten northern tribes that were dispersed throughout the face of the earth through the uh, Assyrian attacks uh, many years before Israel, that is, before the Jewish people were dispersed through the Roman Uh, attack in 70 A.D. that destroyed the temple. The point is not this. The point for Gentile attitudes toward Israel is not Israel right or wrong. In other words, we're going to support Israel and everything that they do right or wrong. It's that our attitude has to be the attitude of God because God's attitude was I chose you, I chose them, 
to be a blessing. They are the physical descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and you and I are to align our attitudes and actions with that spirit. But God himself doesn't bless everything that Israel does. God has judged Israel over and over again. He's used foreign nations to judge Israel. Notice, he used them. But then he turned around and judged those nations that took out their retribution on Israel. Now, you and I don't want to put ourselves or even our countries in that position. That's God's business, friends. God's business is to judge his anointed, that is, Israel. His ultimate anointed was Jesus Christ. Is Jesus Christ. You and I are to have an attitude of blessing and support for Israel and the Jewish people because God said so. Not because all your feelings are warm and cuddly. Not because you agree with every single thing that they do. But because God said so. Any correction, vindication, and so on, is God's business. He's the one that chose them, not you. You and I are to agree with God's viewpoint. This is something that people have a very hard time comprehending. We do not have a choice, in a sense, to disagree with what God did or said concerning Israel. That's God's business. He didn't choose them because they were so great, because they were so wonderful, because of anything great about them. They were the fewest of all the peoples. He didn't choose them for that reason. He chose them because he chose them. You didn't choose them. He did. And we've got to get this through our thick heads and our uh, self-pride and elevation of our own viewpoints over what God has said and done. Because if we don't, what we end up doing is aligning ourselves with the Edomites. And that, my friends, is not a pretty picture. Now from there, we're going to shift to Psalm 83. Because this is going to bring in another group of people, several groups of people, including Edom. Here we go. Are you ready? Keep not silence, O God. Do not hold your peace and be still, O God. For lo, your enemies make a tumult, and they that hate you have lifted up their head. Notice, they that hate you, that is God, have lifted up their head. Now, how do they know, how does a psalmist know that they hate God? Because they hate Israel. That's why. Remember, Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. Because he hated his own brother. God doesn't take that kindly, my friends. They are of the same father and mother, Isaac. 
and Rebecca. For lo, your enemies make a tumult, and they that hate you have lifted up their head. They have taken crafty counsel against your people, that is Israel, and consulted against your hidden ones, referring again to the Jewish people. They have said, come and let us cut them off from being a nation, that the name of Israel may be no more in remembrance. Now, where did the name of Israel come from? God gave that name to the physical descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jacob had a dream, and he wrestled with an angel, and God, as a result of that wrestling, said that he had gained victory, and because of that, God changed Jacob's name to Israel as a prince with God. That's what Israel means. He is a prince with God. So anyone that opposes the prince with God is opposing God. Are you following this? So these other people groups have said, come and let us cut the prince of God and his people from being a nation that the name of Israel may be no more in remembrance. Now, what people groups want to do that? What people groups have come out loud and clear that they want to do that? Well, here are the people groups from God's perspective set forth in Psalm 83. They've consulted together with one consent. In other words, they're in total agreement. Their viewpoints are unified. They are confederate against Israel. That is the physical descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Here they are. The tabernacles of Edom. The Edomites. That's the first one. And the Ishmaelites. Who are the Ishmaelites? The Arab nations. Remember, Joseph was sold to the Ishmaelites and they sold him into Egypt. The Ishmaelites, and then of Moab, and the Hagarenes. Who are the Hagarenes? The descendants of Hagar. Hagar was the mother of Ishmael. One of the sons of Abraham. The Muslims and Arabs claim that Ishmael was the son of promise. That the Bible is wrongly translated in Genesis chapter 12, and that it should have said that Ishmael was the son of promise. He was the son of Hagar who was a concubine, or actually, she was the servant of Sarai, Abraham's wife. God said he was going to make of her descendants 12 princes, and that their descendants would be wild men. Wild. So when you look 
at what's happening with Hamas and how they're conducting themselves, their behavior, radically uncivilized, to the point where many commentators are referring to them as animals or beasts. You're not going to hear me use that term here because they're still made in the image of God. But they're conducting themselves like animals, like beasts. They have no sense of control. They are, the enmity that they have is so great that it is controlling every thought of their lives. The money that they receive is supposed to bless the so-called Palestinian people that are under their rule doesn't get to those people. It's used to build military attacks against Israel. The Ishmaelites, the Hagarenes, and Moab. Who are the Moabites? The Moabites are the descendants of Moab, who is one of the sons of Lot by one of his daughters. Remember, Lot was drawn out of Sodom and Gomorrah together with his daughters? Well, his daughters were married, but their sons refused, their, their husbands refused to re, uh, leave Sodom and Gomorrah because they were infatuated with that going culture and its wickedness. So they were burned up in God's judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah. But Lot's daughters came with him. Lot's wife looked back because she had a fascination with uh, Sodom and Gomorrah and that culture, and she turned into a pillar of, of salt. Now, who was going to give children to Lot? It devolved to his two daughters, who conspired against him to have children and cause him to become drunken. And we'll talk about those children in just a moment. Have you ever considered what the early church was like? Many people are developing a heart longing for a greater fulfillment in our practices as Christians. A recent study showed 53,000 people a week are leaving the back door of America's churches in frustration. What is going on? Why has there not been even a 1% gain among followers of Christ in the last 25 years? Could it be that God is seeking to restore first century Christianity for the 21st century? Jesus said, I'll build my church. Is Christ by his spirit stirring to prepare the church for the 21st century? The early church prayed together and broke bread from house to house. They were family, and it was said by all who observed, behold how they love one another. Incredible. But the same can be found right now. Go to saveus.org and click Sell Church. We can revive first century Christianity for the 21st century. It's about people, not programs. It's about a body, not a building. That's saveus.org. Click Sell Church. Welcome back to Viewpoint. I'm Chuck Chris Meyer. Today we're taking a look at the understanding the attack of Hamas and why it is that the Jerusalem Post would contain a headline. Israel-Hamas conflict, a prophetic window into the end times. 
We get that understanding from Psalm 2, but even more particularly from Psalm 83. In Psalm 83, we find God speaking about this pe- these people groups that are confederated together to cut off Israel from becoming a people, a nation, that the name Israel should be ever destroyed from off the face of the earth. Now that reflects a profound hatred or animosity or enmity, doesn't it? So the tabernacles of Edom, we've talked about the Edomites, God promised to destroy, absolutely, completely destroy. The Ishmaelites, these are the Arabs the descent, and also the descendants of Hagar, the Hagarenes. Then there are the Moabites. The Moabites are the descendants of Lot, together with the Ammonites. That's another people group that's listed in Psalm 83. The Ammonites and the Moabites. Those are the sons of Lot's daughters. Lot conceived those in his daughters by reason of his daughters confederating against him, saying, how else are we going to uh, have a uh, any progeny? So they confederated together to cause their, their father to become drunk. And they each went in unto their father on successive days, and the rest is history. Out came the Moabites and the Ammonites. These, Lot was the nephew of Abraham. Therefore, the Moabites and the Ammonites are the cousins of the Israelites. And they have been jealous. How dare these cousins of ours be called the chosen people? How dare they be given some special treatment by God? We'll see to that. So the enmity between them has been fierce over the years, ever since the birth of those boys, Ammon and Moab. You remember the Moabites tried to uh, take down Israel when Israel came out of Egypt. The Ammonites also. Several chapters in the book of Numbers, Numbers 22, 23, and 24, I believe it is, deal with the king of Moab trying to get a prophet, Balaam, to curse Israel because Israel was uh, uh, taking down all of the enemies of Israel as God had told them to do. And the king of Moab was scared spitless. So he tried to get Israel, get Balaam, the prophet, to curse Israel. You see, all of this history ties together. You cannot understand what's happening today if you don't understand the rest of the story. Then there's another people group called Amalek. Amalek. Who are they? Well, you'll remember, perhaps, that when Israel came out of Egypt... The Amalekites, or Amalekites, however you want to pronounce it, attacked Israel without provocation from the rear. They went after the stragglers and the weak folk of Israel. 
as they came out of Egypt into the wilderness. God was so incensed by what they did that he prescribed and declared the ultimate destruction of Amalek. Then, as if that were not enough, you remember the first king of Israel, Saul, God gave him a responsibility to utterly and destroy the Amalekites or the Amalekites. He saved one, Agag. Now, there may have been some others that he saved too, but we know he saved Agag. And guess what? Later on, in the book of Esther, we find that Haman was an Agagite. Haman was of those who had been instructed by God to be destroyed. And now he was there to destroy Israel completely by the Persians, which is now Iran. God said, Amalek shall be utterly and totally destroyed. So we have two people groups that God declared to be utterly and totally destroyed. The Edomites and the Amalekites or Amalekites. Then there are two other people groups, particularly, that are mentioned. The Philistines. Now, where do the Philistines uh, live? Where did they inhabit? Gaza, the Gaza Strip. Remember the giants? Remember David's battles with the Philistines? Remember uh, Saul's battle with the Philistines? Yeah. Israel's still battling with the Philistines in Gaza. And then the inhabitants of Tyre, where are they? Well, they're up there in Lebanon. They're up there by Lebanon. Is Israel experiencing attacks from the north now? Hezbollah? Yes. These are all confederated together against Israel as God's anointed. And then it says, Asher has also joined with them as helped the children of Lot. Now, who are these people today? Well, uh... If you look at Jordan, you'll find that Jordan basically covers the area of formerly Moab and Ammon, the Moabites and the Ammonites. So we begin to see a bigger picture here from God's viewpoint. And viewpoint determines destiny. If we do not embrace God's viewpoint and understand it, we're going to be confused, and we're going to adopt fleshly viewpoints. How can we possibly diss what God has said? How can we possibly agree with a rising global viewpoint that is against Israel? And that's exactly what's happening. These people groups now are becoming the centerpiece of the rest of the world's, the ungodly or pagan world's attack against Israel.
That's what's happening. So the psalmist concludes with God's words, let them be confounded, that is, those people groups, and troubled forever. Let them be put to shame and perish, that men may know that you, whose name alone is Jehovah, are the most high over all the earth. Who are you going to align yourself with? You see, even the Pope now is aligning himself increasingly with the people groups of Psalm 83, the very ones that God has taken issue with. Why is he doing that? Because the Pope has embraced a completely different viewpoint, not the viewpoint given in the Bible, but the viewpoint of multiculturalism, religious pluralism, and political correctness. That's his unholy trinity of theology. That's unfortunately what happens when people wander away from the authority of God and his word. It's a serious problem, my friends. So when we hear the phrase, from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free. It is so radically contrary to God's expressed viewpoint in the scriptures that one wonders how in the world anybody that can read would adopt that kind of position. Because God gave through Abraham specific meets and bounds for the promised land. It was to include from, from Egypt, the river of Egypt, all the way up to Lebanon, and from the uh, Mediterranean Sea, all the way over to the Euphrates River. That's the land that God promised. That's the promised land. During the reign of David, King David, Israel occupied virtually all of that land, had control of it, as with Solomon. After that, when the ten northern tribes rebelled against David and against uh, God, they lost land. That land was lost. Assyria came in and was used by God to judge the rebellion of the ten northern tribes of Israel. There's so much more history here to understand. But the reality is, when they say from the river to the sea, that should be belong to the Palestinian people. There is no such thing as the Palestinian people historically. There is a Palestine, which is Israel. Palestine is Israel. And it didn't belong to any other people group other than those to whom God decreed it. Why, then, is there such a problem? The problem is a historic, unmitigated, eternal enmity. The hatred is so deep 
the rebellion, the sense of entitlement by the people groups that God has listed specifically is so great that in the Israel National News today is called the eternal hatred. It's absolutely correct. That's exactly what it is. We cannot just try to rationalize what's going on there in terms of general Western viewpoints of life. If we try to do that, which is what the Western world is trying to do, to press these issues into a Western mindset, it is impossible, friends. God has decreed, declared what that mindset is. It's an eternal enmity, so great that God himself has set himself against these people groups. And more specifically, even the greater Amalek and Edom. Do you know that not only does Israel consider the Edomites to be the entire world now, the entire Gentile world, but also considers the entire general uh, Gentile world to be the Amalekites? In other words, they have been generalized so that all the rest of the world is against Israel. And that's exactly what God said would happen in Zechariah chapter 12. All the nations will come against Israel and Jerusalem and will surround. And God is going to judge them. Joel, the prophet, says God is going to judge them for how they tried to parse his land. This is not a game anymore, friends. We're at the end of the age. That's the point. People get ready. Let's adjust our attitudes to agree with God's attitude. And let's let God deal with the nations. Let God deal with Israel. Let's let God deal with us to be truly repentant and godly people, to prepare the way of the Lord for history's final hour. Today, today is the day of salvation. God bless and will be a blessing. You've been listening to Viewpoint with Chuck Grissmeyer. Viewpoint is supported by the faithful gifts of our listeners. Let me urge you to become a partner with Chuck as a voice to the church declaring vision for the nation. Join us again next time on Viewpoint as we confront the issues of America's heart and home.